Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Welcome to episode 000011 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm your host through to eight tonight. As always, I'd like to start off with an acknowledgement of the traditional owners from which I am broadcasting to you this evening, the people of the Wurundjeri, the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thanks to Vaughan for another excellent episode of Double Bounce. He'll be back next Tuesday. Play some really good tunes tonight. I liked it. So this week, um, Uluru. Uluru has been in the news a fair bit over the past week. You may have seen the Uluru Statement from the Heart, Uluru the Tourist Attraction, and most importantly, Uluru the Sacred Site on the traditional lands of the Anungu people. Last week, the uh, Minister of for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, announced that he would put forward a model for a referendum on constitutional recognition within this term of Parliament. Very little is known beyond that although the early indications are that it will not include an adoption of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which calls for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Now, in my view, that would be a further watering down of the hopes and aspirations of Aboriginal people. I think we're at a unique period in history, and I think the government would be wise to read the tides when it comes to the Uluru Statement. I think most Australians are actually ready for a government, any government, to be bold when it comes to this matter. The question is, though, are a majority of people in a majority of states? We must remember, remember that there's only been eight successful referendums held since, since Federation. So it's important that we stare down the peddlers of ignorance within and outside the Australian Parliament if we're going to achieve any sort of meaningful reform. So shortly I'll be joined by Aboriginal academic lawyer and researcher Eddie Sinnott to talk this matter through with us a little more. And later in the hour, I'm very excited about this, we'll be joined by Gundin Jamara leader Dennis, Rode, Dennis Rose regarding um, UNESCO's historic listing of the Bunge Binge Aquaculture System as a World Heritage Site. If you've never been down there, um, it's truly an amazing place. So who better to find out more from than Dennis Rode, one of the many who have fought for years and years to have the heritage and ingenuity of his ancestors recognised. So please stick around for that. But just back to uh, Uluru before we get on with the show. I see that the uh, the ignorant and the arrogant continue to climb the sacred site, which is Uluru, against the express wishes of the traditional owners. It's been covered a little bit in mainstream media. The Today's show wanted to get some leading expert analysis on the whys and why nots of the issues surrounding this. So, of course, they got Pauline Hanson and Steve Price on to discuss the matter. See, that's where we are with public discourse in the mainstream media on these issues. We have basically people defending the urination and defecation of one of Australia's most sacred sites. See, there are no um, portaloos on top of the rock, oddly enough. So when it rains, the runoff ends up in many of the watering holes around Uluru that are a central water source for the wildlife in the area. So some of those watering holes are now deemed undrinkable in some parts. 
I think it's actually funny. I reckon a lot of the people actually climbing Uluru would obey the stay on stay off the grass signs in their local communities, and perhaps that's what the uh, producers of the Today Show should actually do as well: is stay off the grass. The best way to connect with me is via Twitter. My handle is at Mr DT James. This is the mission on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Now to our first guest tonight, an actual expert, unlike. Uh, the mob that the day show gets on. As I um, mentioned in the opening, the government last week announced that they would seek to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander formally, formally acknowledged within the constitution. So joining us to discuss the ins and outs of all that is Eddie Sinnott. Eddie is an Indigenous academic lawyer and researcher at Griffith University. Eddie also works in Indigenous higher education, providing support to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students studying at Griffith University through the Gummery Student Support Unit. He's currently competing, completing his PhD within Griffith's Law School, focusing on a critique of Indigenous recognition and the liberal rights discourse of Indigenous recognition. He has also taught Indigenous studies at Griffith University, teaching Reconstructing the Aboriginal Australian, Aboriginal Political Histories, uh, and contemporary Aboriginal issues. He's on the line with us now. Eddie, welcome back to Triple R and welcome to the mission. Cheers, brother. Thanks for having me. No sweat. Thanks for coming on. Um, first question. Is the voice to Parliament, as ascribed in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, a third chamber of the Parliament? <laughs> the hard-hitting question, straight <laughs> up. <laughs> uh, um, no. Okay, thank you for your time, Eddie. No, um. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm sure everyone you know, has heard this one um, be thrown around a bit in the last couple of days since Ken Wyatt's speech um, at the National Press Club. We've kind of had this come up again from a couple of people and it was first kind of thrown around when um, Malcolm Turnbull and Barnaby Joyce first kind of raised this in response to uh, to the, all the rest of from the heart and the things that were asked. But there's a number of kind of ways you can look at it. Um, you know, it's not proposing to have any legislative power or to be able to interfere in any way or shape or form like that. Others have suggested that it could grow in its, you know, interpretation and take over more power and have this kind of quasi-third chamber status. But it's nothing that's been proposed. It's kind of being put up by people that are, I think, a little bit too keen or eager to find potential issues with the voice rather than kind of embracing it uh, for what it is and what it's aimed at achieving with regards to our, um, you know, what is the foundational relationship of our nation. Yeah, I think what um, a lot of people don't recognise is that there actually are already a number of bodies or voices that advise government on a, on a number of matters. So we have the Auditor General's Office, we have the Law Reform Commission, we have the Human Rights Commission. Um, yeah, definitely. And, yeah, a couple of people have raised, oh, well, you know, none of them are in the Constitution, so... You know, why, why should the um, First Nations voice be there? But like I said just before, it's, you know, the relationship with us mob, with Indigenous peoples, the foundational relationship um, of this country. It's something that we haven't been very good at, that we haven't sorted out, and that we need to build a better foundation going forward if we want to have that better future. So it's, you know, perfectly reasonable. And when we look to other examples all around the world, but considering our own kind of unique circumstances here as well, um, it's perfectly reasonable to have that, you know, inserted into the constitution um, to be able to be that point of, you know, political representation for blackfellas. Yeah, I think if you look at it this way, we've had 230 years of failed policy in relation mm. to Aboriginal affairs, and a lot of the policy that is actually generated is um, retrofitted 
and so yep. you know yep. we're working to re-engineer policies that um, suit Aboriginal people. Whereas the the Voice, if they get it right and is actually embraced by uh, the government, would yep. actually get that input from from the outset. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that too that you know, coming out of Uluru, um, the Voice was a first step in a you know, sequence reform. Voice Treaty and Truth. Um, so obviously recognising the important place of of treaties and what treaties will be able to you know, develop and deliver with regards to that relationship, but not you know recognising that there's an important first step in that political relationship, but also in the kind of political culture of what the Australian nation is, and you know having or being able to have that important place within the constitution to be able to um, address that relationship and drive those negotiation agreements forward around those other issues around treaty and truth. So it would seem, however, that the early indications don't look too promising at the moment. I know that uh, any referendum is, you know, three years off or within the next three years. But it does seem that um, uh, Ken White and the the Prime Minister are sort of making noises around it being a a legislated response instead of a a constitutional response. Can you describe the difference between what a legislated response would be and what a constitutional response would be? Yeah, so a legislated body is something that, you know, we've had before. So everyone would be familiar with ATSIC and um, the goods and bads and, you know, the reforms that we're all looking at as communities with ATSIC before the government unfortunately removed that from us. Um, Previous to that, we've had other um, bodies. The National Aboriginal Consultative Committee was something that was one of the first ones that came out in the 1970s. Um, but the key thing or the key difference with it, you know, being in the Constitution is that it's so hard to, to change, that it entrenches it there. But it's also about, you know, hitting at the, the centre or the heart of, you know, where the power and authority in Australia is and that um, legislative decision-making power, all those different aspects. So, you know, a serious refounding of our relationship um, at that centrepiece in the Constitution to be able to set the pathway forward for those other um, aspects of the relationship that we want to change and develop into the future. So the voice, you know, no matter what it looks like, if it is actually legislated, um, if you have uh, a Peter Dutton of the world become, you know, Prime Minister or someone yep. of his ilk, he can easily just come along with the help of, uh, you know, One Nation or other minority senators in the Australian yep. Senate and uh, just abolish it at, at a whim. Yeah, and at a history of that um, you know, it didn't even need the minorities. It was the Labor opposition under bipartisan um, support. Opposition leader, yeah, Mark Latham at the time that that supported that as well. Um, yeah, so whilst we need changes immediately, and you know, um, people in community aren't naive to the challenges that we face, and this is something that I had in mind when I was writing my piece recently about Ken Wyatt. It was fantastic to be able to. You know, hear someone from his background and his experience be able to speak to those things and to say some of the things he said that, you know, we've never heard from an Indigenous Affairs Minister before. But um, at the end of the day, we know things need to change and there's an urgency about it, but we're also here for the long game too. 230 years is a blip in the history of how long we've been here. It's uh, been a hard blip, but nonetheless, we're, we're here for the long game. And if that means, you know, sticking it out for a bit longer, so be it. We've seen how much the support for the Uluru Statement from the Heart has grown uh, just in the two years since the initial reaction from the Campbell government. Um, and whilst there was you know, a couple of negative things being thrown around over the last couple of days, I think it's important to remember that at least the government has put up this money for the co-design process and it'll provide another opportunity for um, not only mob but other people out there in the community too to show their support and have their say and, 
to ensure what has become a people's movement continues to grow. Yeah, I think um, polling, for what it's worth, shows that um, you know a vast majority of Australians want to you know support the Ulleri statement and want to see some form of recognition within the constitution. There are people um, within within you know the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community that suggest that there's no point being recognised within the constitution um, until we have a treaty. What, what do you yep. what do you think about that? Um, oh, well, firstly, I you know, understand and. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I probably may have been slightly more in that camp as well. Um, but I think we're kind of giving up or kind of misconstruing what the promise or what the reality of a treaty, especially even ones that may be or may not be internationally recognised um, with the kind of political realities we face. But also understanding those political realities doesn't mean we have to give anything up as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as well. Um, you know, so we could hold out for this, you know, ideal treaty that may never come. Um, treaties haven't always been, you know, best practice or worked well for others overseas either. So we're kind of in a unique position where we don't have this history of relationship we can build on, but we can also look to others to kind of, you know, learn from their mistakes and the hard lessons that they've had to learn as well. And I think that's one of the um, amazing things that comes out of the Uluru Statement from the heart. There was understanding of, of those different kind of nuances of the relationship and what we want to achieve. And it wasn't, it had to be one or the other. It was an understanding that to kind of impact the political culture, to have an impact on the public institutions, we needed the sequence reform of voice, treaty and truth. Um, to go ahead just at the state levels would leave us susceptible, you know, to the, to the Commonwealth level. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, just having something at the Commonwealth level and not addressing those treaty relationships, which has long been an aspiration of our people, would be problematic also. It's 19 past seven here on Triple R. We're speaking with Eddie Sinnott around issues of uh, constitutional reform and the adoption of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. In um, your most recent article in um, theconversation.com entitled Listening with Our Ears and Eyes, Ken White's Big Promises on Indigenous Affairs, um, one thing that you've noted early on in this discussion is that there has been um, a significant change of language and a significant change of uh, rhetoric um, from the government in the way that they're going about this. Do you want to just elaborate on that a little bit more for us? Yeah, so, I mean, some people have been a little bit sceptical of the, just the change in term from Minister from Indigenous Affairs to Minister to Indigenous Australians. Um, you know, it fits the rhetoric of unity and the, the long kind of history of multiculturalism, you know, that we've had in governments kind of appealing to that rather than emphasising you know, negatives or anything like that. But I think, especially for me uh, as an Aboriginal person, to see an Aboriginal man um, in cabinet, in that position, to talk about where his um, mother, where his family were from, from the mission of the reserve system, to understand that history, which we're all connected to intimately in some way in our communities. Um, so rather than, you know, a previous minister that said we don't need a voice, we've got him, here we have a minister um, that can speak from personal experience, but that is also, you know, hitting all the right kind of um, language aspects on our experience as Aboriginal people. You know, there was one line even there about um, history is often written and controlled by the dominant groups in society. And, you know, it's not often that you'll hear a government minister um, recognising that and acknowledging those aspects and the impact that that has on us in society. And I did, you know, also note that it's very early days and obviously language and rhetoric's only going to buy you so much uh, with the community before it needs to cut through for meaningful reform. And 
you know, a lot of those reforms we needed yesterday. Um, but I think from the small kind of changes that we're starting to see already and some of the language shift, um, you know, put into perspective, I think we are seeing something significant uh, changing in this history. Yeah, I've known, um, for what it's worth, I've known Ken for um, Ken White for... Um, a number of years when he used to be um, a senior public servant over in Western Australia, and I can vouch for him when I say that he actually does get it. He is actually um, properly embedded and respectful um, of uh, Aboriginal culture, Aboriginal ways, uh, his respect for elders, and so he's not someone that's going to come along and try and mess it up. But my big concern, of course, is the rest of the government. And what I would have, what I would have liked to have seen when um, uh, Ken Wyatt came in and announced the referendum. I would have liked to have seen the Prime Minister standing right beside him from from the outset because we now seem to be in a position where Ken is pushing one way but we're hearing murmuring, murmurs from the Prime Minister that um, uh, they're just going to look to, you know, add a, a couple of sentences to the preamble of the Constitution and that's as far as they want constitutional reform. Yeah, okay, we, and I think... I think you've hit on something really important about political leadership and how it's needed in this space and um, that it's not just going to be, you know, a job for the black fellow they've put in charge of yeah. us, that it needs to be something across the community. And we've experienced, you know, we experienced this coming into the election when both Labor and Liberals, um, the Greens had been on board from early on, but Labor was kind of equivocating around these issues as well. And I think the message got through to them that, um, you know, once bipartisanship is important and, you know, all these other kind of things that they're playing out in the kind of political spaces that they're working on, that one of the most important things was to exercise some political leadership on this issue. And, um, you know, we were fortunate enough to see um, Bill Shortland, the leadership at the time, and since Labor come out in support of their pre-election position as well. But I think even in that space, we have seen a shift in the coalition and, and Scott Morrison as well, even though there's been these kind of to and throw backwards and forwards over the last couple of days and, and like you said, um, for a lot of people it did seem like Ken was kind of left out there a little bit um, yeah. but I think, you know, in perspective, um, I think there's some lessons for everyone out of the last couple of days about where we want to head with this and I think one of the things that Ken does say, you know, which is important to reiterate, is about the time we want to take with this to make sure that we do get it right because it's too important to fail. Um, it's not that we're afraid of failure. Um, you know, we've been dealing with a lot of things throughout our history, but that's just how important it is to, to achieve this reform for us. Yeah, you're right. People aren't afraid of failure. I just think um, people are afraid of wasting their time. You know, there's yeah, so much yeah. energy that has already gone and gone into this. Do you think, yeah, definitely. Do you think, um, before I let you go, do you think one of the problems with the discussion at the moment is that um, the Uluru Statement didn't actually put up a model for what the voice would actually look like? There wasn't, you know, a picture drawn for for politicians and, and for the public. Do you think it's worth revisiting that and actually coming up with um, a sort of like a, a rock-solid proposal that people can actually get their head around? I mean, I think that's where we're going to head out of this co-design process anyway. Yep. But I, I do think that has been overdone a little bit as a critique. I think there was enough in the initial um, output from Uluru through the Referendum Council's report as well as the Joint Select Committee's report about what that could actually look like. Um, my kind of fear and loss, you know, a little bit has been that um, the media itself has perhaps been overblowing it a little bit. I think that information is available there. And, um, you made the little jibe at the start about, you know, getting real experts on. I think too often 
we platform or we give voices to people that perhaps aren't as well informed or shouldn't be as they are. That's slanderous. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, definitely understand, you know, where the community's coming from. Not just the community, you know, people that have to make decisions where our representatives as well. Um, you know, so I always put my hand out there and volunteer whenever people want to talk about what it could look like and, and where it's heading. But I think now that we know that we're heading into this co-design process and there's going to be a bit of time and people are going to have that opportunity, um, I think a lot of those kind of concerns and questions that people have will be able to be um, answered and sorted out through this next process. Yep, so watch this space. We're very early on um, in this yep. uh, process now. The government um, has made some positive noises. I hope they continue to make positive noises. Uh, we'll definitely try and keep uh, you, the dear listener, abreast of issues as we go along this journey together. It's not just a black issue. It's a black and white issue. Yep. Um, Eddie Sino, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. Too easy. Thanks for having me on again. No problems. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Hi, I'm Kevin Sheedy and I'm listening to 3 Triple R. Oh, that's very good of you, Kev. Thank you very much. You're listening to 3 Triple R too. We just had a conversation with Emmy Sinod around constitutional reform and the Ulleri Statement from the Heart. Now we have um, another guest Earlier this month, the Bunjabi aquacultural system was added to the UNESCO World Heritage List, a list of naturally and culturally significant sites deemed worthy of protection by the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation, UNESCO. Australia already has 77 sites. I should say that's several sites on the list, including the Sydney Opera House. But Budge Beam is the first Indigenous site to be added exclusively for its cultural significance. So we have Kakadu, which is there for its natural and environmental beauty, and we have Ayers Rock, or as we all call it now, Uluru, that is also on the list. Budge Beam is home of the one of the world's oldest agricultural systems, a 6,600-year-old network of channels, dams and weirs developed by the Gundijamara people to manipulate... F- floodplains and water flows to trap and harvest kuyang, or eels, as we call them these days. It spans 100 square kilometres on the site of the old Budgebeam lava flow in southwest Victoria, just north of the Great Ocean Road, about half an hour's drive from Warrnambool. One of the people that has campaigned tirelessly for the site to be recognised is Gundajamara Man and the project manager of the Budgebeam Sustainable Development Partnership, Dennis Rose. And Dennis is on the line with us now. Dennis, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Daniel. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for your time. First of all, um, congratulations. Um, this has been a, a long fight. It's you know over forty years in the making. Um, what does the decision mean to you and, and your people? Oh, look, there's, there's, there's a few things, but certainly recognition. I think Daniel was the first thing. Recognition of what our Gunditjmara ancestors did more than six thousand years ago. They uh, did this wonderful engineering works that uh, looked after the environment but manipulated or managed the environment uh, to ensure a, a wonderful supply of food, particularly uh, the kuyang or the short-finned eel, um, but other fish as well. Um, they spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of resources to uh, uh, construct the uh, very permanent structures. 
um, it's a it's a it's a massive site um, for you know you spend um, you know most of your days down there taking people about and um, you know letting the letting the country tell its own story. Um, for those who haven't been down there, can you actually you know describe the site for us? Yeah, look, if you go to uh, what we call the Muldoon's fish trap, uh, fish trap system, aquaculture system, it's it's the one that was dated, first construction and scientifically accepted date of 6,600 years ago. You can walk out there today and still see the channels. One of the channels uh, works its way around from a, from the opening of the and to uh, a couple of sinkholes of 350 metres. So you can see where uh, our ancestors actually constructed these uh, channels and weirs and that. And you, you can also see how this, this system of aquaculture, as we call it, we're talking about farming fish. Um, you can see how it works when you're out in the country walking around and see these magnificent channels. We also have smaller systems. I think I haven't ever really counted them, but somewhere about 120 individual uh, fish trap systems throughout the lava flow, mm-hmm. and uh, some, some are relatively small, certainly no, not near the uh, 50 metres, but they all form a really important part of this, this aquaculture system, this system of growing eels. So Budge, um, Budge Bim itself is actually um, Australia's, or one of Australia's youngest volcanoes, is that correct? first erupted about 30,000 years ago and uh, they tell me, the uh, geologists tell us that uh, the, the current shape form of the lava flow finally settled about 8,000 years ago and uh, created a lot of these wetlands and, and uh, a great water supply as well within this lava flow. So as, as you mentioned um, before, this has been a decades-long struggle for recognition. Um, can you outline that journey as well as, as, you know, name some of the people we should be thankful for for, for taking up that struggle? Oh, certainly, certainly there's people that, uh, you know, were integral in that. I think we go back to about 2000, late 2001, 2002, when it was first sort of formally uh, announced that we were pursuing a, a World Heritage List, Uncle Ken Saunders a local village Mara person and a fellow he worked with, um, Andrew McEwen. Uh, they uh, had the vision, I suppose, to uh, to pursue this World Heritage uh, nomination. But I think, to be fair, that in 2002, we weren't real sure what World Heritage actually meant and what the process was to get there. Um, it is a, uh, a process that relies on, on evidence good evidence to back up your claims. Uh, so that took us a while to get there, but uh, Uncle Ken was certainly a driving force for many a year to uh, uh, to get us there. But also, look, our Gunditjmara community uh, has always been behind us, always supported us, or not so much behind us, but with us. Um, and, uh, and I think the other thing that needs to be recognised is we have this broader uh, community support within broader non-Aboriginal community as well and we've had that uh, for many years and certainly that's been important in terms of uh, putting our nomination together and uh, getting to where we were uh, today, yeah. So one of, one of the bright byproducts of, of this listing now is um, there's 
potentially going to be um, a significant increase in the amount of tourists that actually come down there and, and, and visit this site. Um, the Gundij Mirroring Traditional Owners Aboriginal Corporation has developed a, a master plan to encourage but also deal with that increase in tourism down there. Um, what, what is the thinking behind that plan? Oh, look, I think that we've, we've, um, we do a lot of planning, a lot of decisions we make based on, on good, good advice, good, good support, good uh, uh, plans. Um, we, we certainly recognise we're going to have an increase in tourism. And in fact, since the last, you know, the last week or so, I think the Budgebim Tours phone has been uh, ringing fairly, fairly well. That's great. Um, and uh, we want to ensure that whatever we do, world heritage, tourism, economics, looking up, is the most important thing. We're going to make sure that our country is still sustainable. It is tough country. It is lava flow. Stony rice country. We need to make sure that uh, we don't impact the value space has been listed for. So, some some careful consideration about you know environmentally friendly and culturally friendly uh, boardwalks and walking tracks and mm-hmm. good interpretation and signage and that's been uh, an important part of this. Um, has there been any? changes in the environment down there that you've noticed due to um, you know, potential climate change? Uh, look, a, a little bit. I think that, I think that one, of the, one of the major concerns is we've got towards the end of our World Heritage nomination. Our, the body that assesses our nomination is called ICOMOS, which is the Council on Monuments, a little bit more than that. Um, they, they were they were still are concerned about the reliability and quantity and quality of our water supply. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, it's okay. But, you know, if, if some of these climate change projections um, ring true, uh, that there will be a lot of people looking at the, 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 that amount of water that comes down the other flow. Um, and, and feeds the uh, aquaculture systems and our fish and, and our other plants and animals. So it's uh, it, it's something we're certainly aware of. We have to keep in mind as we look about you know ten or twenty or fifty years time. So if people want to come down, um, you know this weekend or you know next week or next school holidays, um, what's the best way for people to go about that? So they look on the. Uh, Go into the Google machine and look at Budge BIM Tours. That's B U D J space B I M Budge BIM Tours, um, uh, or, or give us a call zero three five five two seven double zero double zero, and get through to our our uh, Gunditjmara tour guides, uh, and we can more than more often than not be able to arrange a tour for uh, for people. I remember, um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't remember me at all, but I was probably down there probably about 12 or 13 years ago as part of some sort of career leadership program, and um, you were providing a tour. So, again, I can vouch for um, how fascinating the, the, the tour is. Um, you see the lava flows. You, you recognise that, you know, um, uh, what the last ice age did to the area. You recognise how young 
um, geologically that lava flow is. But of course, the most impressive thing of all is the the eel traps themselves and and the remnants of the huts. Some, as Dennis has just said, state back go back to uh, sixteen six thousand six hundred years ago. Um, just um, before I let you go, Dennis, it's um, twelve to eight on Triple R. Um, do you want to give people just a brief overview of Gundijamara country itself? Oh, yes. Well, Gundijamara country extends from the... Uh, out in the west from the Glenelg River, which is on the South Australian border. Uh, one of one of Victoria's and probably Australia's best-kept secrets, the Glenelg River. It's a magnificent river. Mm-hmm. It's traditional. is Bacara. We have uh, the Wannon River to the north and to the, the Hopkins River towards Warrnambool. Um, it's a beautiful country. It's a beautiful landscape. Uh, the Budgebim Cultural Heritage Landscape is an important part of it, but it's not the only part. There's a rich cultural history out through that country, um, and uh, it's, a, it's you know, just a wonderful resource out there that that, that country provided and continues to provide. I guess if people want to find out more, they can actually check out the Gundijmere and Traditional Owners Aboriginal Corporation um, and be pointed in the right direction if they want to find out about the uh, the mighty Gundijamara. That's it, yeah, that, that's for sure, yes, Daniel. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time and congratulations once again. Um, you've actually, you've added to, you've, you've, you've achieved heritage for your own people and, and recognition for your own people, but you've also um, contributed to the overall heritage of um, Australia. So it now becomes our heritage as well. So thanks so much for your efforts and thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure. Uh, thank you very much, Daniel. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.